Hi, I'm Adrian Potter. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. For most of my life, I've been curious about why people do the things they do, especially people that create for a living. In these episodes, I'm going to talk to people that design and make the most amazing things. I'm going to ask them how and why they do the things they do. Please join me on this adventure into a creative life. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. Today we've got a very special guest, David McLaren, Order of Australia and Creative Director of the Bungendore Woodworks Gallery. Please welcome David McLaren. Hello, Adrian. Yeah, David, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. Are you ready for a little podcast chat? Yeah, yeah, look, I, I wouldn't mind if, if I started in my younger years, um, it's a story I, don't, I haven't said to, I haven't told many people at all about. Mm, that's what I oh, want to good. talk about. <laughs> oh, cool, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. Shall I start? Absolutely. Oh, look, I can start you off with my little introduction here. Okay, you do that. Okay. David is the artistic director and founder of the Bungendore Woodworks Gallery. If you've ever sold something made of wood in Australia, you've probably sold something at Bungendore. David McLaren, welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. Thank you very much, Adrian. Thank you. And you're going to tell us your story. Yeah, look, I'll, I'll try to move through it pretty quickly. There's a lot, a lot going on, and you just stop me wherever you like. But I'll start my uh, where I grew up in Huntington, Long Island, which is about 35 miles from uh, New York City, on the North Shore, and uh, we lived in a place called Huntington Bay Hills, and. Uh, it's a rather idyllic place to live, and lots of uh, younger people. We all got together and sort of did things all, a lot, a lot, uh, you know, all together. Uh, we had a lot to do with boating, and um, a lot of partying went on. And teenage years, a lot of drinking. Yeah. What's <laughs> well, What's the date that we're talking about here, David? Uh, 19, well, in teenage years was from 1955 to 1960. So you're kind of like more of a beatnik rather than a hippie. Yes, yes, that's right, very much so. And, uh, you know, we we might have been classified as having a kind of a privileged upbringing, but there wasn't a lot of money around yet mm. uh, in, in the States. And the kids, uh, you'll hear this over and over again, but the kids were just said to get out of the house and go somewhere and play, you know. Yeah. There were a lot right. of freedom. And uh, 10 weeks of summer vacation, which seemed like it was endless. Wonderful. Yeah, I reckon Uh, you get bored after 10 weeks. (laughs) Probably. You certainly forget a lot about school. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Can you you just unpack the word privilege? Is that possible? Mm -hmm. Uh, In this case, it might have been just our location. The houses were pretty modest, but we lived on the beach, basically. Yeah. Uh, And... um, so that, I, I, I think that's the way our parents thought of it as well. The, the beach or the beach association was a, a private association. So yeah. it was taken care of by the, you know, the adults, the members. And we used to have movie nights and square dancing and all oh, that kind of 
Sounds magnificent. Yeah, it was wonderful. Mm. Were you always yeah. making things? Like, did you always tinker with stuff? I did a bit, yeah, in a, in a modest sort of way. I, I had boats mm. and had a modest little workshop. My father was um, an electrical engineer uh, and servo, servo mechanisms. Not very modest, but, you know, drill presses and that kind of thing. So, um, and, and, and got into cars and taking apart cars. That's what you were doing. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Now, in the summers, I actually worked for my father. He had his own business. And again, it was very modest to start with. Um, we worked in a basement of um, his partner. And uh, we were, he was doing um, pretty much contract, a lot of contract work for uh, mostly for the military, I think. And um, I was doing a lot of wiring, um, soldering. Yeah, right. And um, and then he, after a few years, I guess it was 1958, he he teamed up with uh, another similar sort of person, but his, his specialty was in um, photography. Yeah. And so he worked out a way to uh, use track with cameras, track uh, the missiles being launched from uh, Cape Canaveral. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask if your dad was involved in the Trinity Project or something like that, because... Well, in a sense, uh, the big project back then was um, uh, doing the training module for for docking for the moon landing. Gosh. (laughs) Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I was involved in, you know, a lot of wiring and that, and then Mm. I moved to doing mechanical drawing. I guess I always worked as a young kid mowing lawns and all this. So there was a lot yeah. of work and uh, grew up in that kind of a household. Yeah, Worked yeah, yeah. Long hours, Saturdays, you know, the whole game. There's a, um, a pretty large proportion of the public um, that don't believe that anyone actually went to the moon. What do you reckon? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a strange phenomenon, isn't it? Well, I don't know. I'm asking you. It's just one of those things. We can never know. Can we? I don't know. Well, as much as you can know anything, I guess, you know, images transmitted on screens. Yeah. Anyway, that's just another side, and I interrupted you. That's okay. That's okay. You interrupt wherever. So Um, you're doing lots of soldering, but no woodworking? No. 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 I, I tell you the truth, woodworking was always a struggle. Um, because I never had sharp tools, and um, I tried to put a, you know, a, 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 an oak or a white oak uh, transom, reinforced transom on on my boat that I bought, plywood mm. boat, and I just recall screws breaking and the whole the whole thing, you know, it was uh, so. Yeah. Look, I well, I reckon yeah. there'd be uh, just so many beginner woodworkers out there that would uh, know exactly how you feel when your screws yeah. break. If you don't have that introduction, the proper introduction, and, and uh, you know, like like most uh, kids, my, my father was pretty uh, busy in his old world. What about school? Did they teach um, handwork at school in any any material? No, no. Uh, it was pretty rudimentary. Yeah, it was not a good experience, really. I actually had more more fun in, or was more organised in metalworking. But again, yeah. it wasn't. It was. Not inspiring. Well, if you're soldering for your dad and you 
probably drilling holes in metal boxes for your dad, then yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just a job, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, I guess when you turn 18 or thereabouts, you probably go to the big city. No, not quite. I, I went to Yale University. Did you? Yeah. Studying uh, what? Engineering, uh, electrical engineering. Yeah. I wasn't particularly happy in all of that. Uh, mm. I didn't feel uh, really in my element. The engineering school was going through turmoil. The, the head of the department was going to Caltech and he was taking a number of people with him and all that mm. kind of thing. It just wasn't clicking with me. I took up, I took up swimming at Yale pretty seriously. Yeah, right. And um, that was pretty challenging because Yale was a, you know, one of the best swimming uh, schools around. And I even continued into the summer, and it was a summer program where you bring people uh, from all over the states um, to train for the Olympics. So I was in that training regime. Wow. <laughs> so. You, you, you're swimming like five or six, seven hours a day, I guess. Exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, three kilometres in the morning and three in the afternoon. And were yeah. you swimming for like the 100 metres or 100 yards probably back then? No, it was, uh, uh, it was 100 yards, yeah. Yeah, it was 100 yards. Yeah. Well, that was a metre, yeah, the, they had two pools. One was a metre, 100 metres, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it would be 20... 20, uh, 20 laps, uh, you know, doing just the arms and then 20 laps just kicking and then 20 laps arms and everything. And, uh, yeah, so I did that. Do, um, do you still swim now? No, not at all. I mean, I like it, but I don't do it. No. Yeah. There's not that many opportunities in Bungendore. <laughs> no, not in Bungendore, yeah. <laughs> you could go to the Shoalhaven River. <laughs> swim in the puddle. <laughs> exactly, the drought. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And look, just describe to me, I know Yale as a name, but I is that in Boston or is that in New York City or whereabouts? Uh, New, Haven. New Haven, Connecticut. Yeah. Which is more or less between Boston and New York City. Very prestigious place to go and study. Oh, yeah, very much so. Mm. Okay, so you, you hang out there for, what, a year? Let me just, yeah, um... So during that swimming time, I got Crohn's disease, and it was probably stress-related. Just explain what that is. That's a, uh, uh, an inflammatory disease of the bowel. Things are not working right, so you kind of attack your own tissues. And, uh, and you still suffer from that now. I'm pretty good. Oh, pretty yeah. good. It's, yeah, it's a lot, a lot of remission. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. And how do you contract that? Is that is that from the pool or? No, I think it's just stress. Yeah, really. Yeah. And you're you're stressed about just what's going on in your life, I guess. Are you at this stage? Yeah, I'm pretty unhappy, and yeah. I think I was taking that out on in, in just um, repetitious pool laps and whatever. I wasn't the only one. There were others like me. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing. Yeah. I would think it'd be a pretty healthy thing to do, though. Hey, like you're doing exercise and you, in a sense, meditating. Oh, you are. You are. Yeah. And you're zoning out. Mm. Yeah. Would you recommend swimming if somebody's really stressed? Would that be something you'd say? Look, go I and do so. uh, Yeah. 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 I think, I think that uh, it doesn't solve your problems by any means. No. You're, you're in the pool and you've got the problem still. 
but um, it's a good it's a good timeout. So you get out of the pool. Do you yeah, go and so solve I, your problems, or did you still have to? Well, I um, I went back for my second year, and by mid year, I decided I was I really wanted to transfer into the humanities. And Yale said there's, their policy was if you want to transfer from one school to another, engineering school to humanities, had to take a year off. Really? Mm. I don't think any university in the world would be doing that now. They'd say, yeah, please stay. <laughs> it could be, yeah. 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 So <laughs> I traveled to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to hook up with uh, some of my uh, friends from uh, my neighborhood. And we lived in a share house there. And I was I was uh, just dropping in on, on courses at the uh, Louisiana State University, Faulkner and other things like that. And occasionally, um, they they had they had work at night sweeping the the barges that would go up and down the Mississippi. So occasionally, I do that with them. Did you see any music in Louisiana? See music? Yeah. Uh, listened to it, but didn't see any. No, I went to New Orleans, you know, once or twice, mm. and yeah, yeah, it really wasn't. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it was sort of more normal rather than was not as celebrated as it is today. So yeah, yeah. I just hear the word well, not Baton Rouge, perhaps, but Louisiana, and I just think, well, man, music. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I was a, a rock and roll kid and all the rest. You know, I grew up in all, with all that. Liked it. I sort of while I was at uh, Louisiana State. I really began to immerse myself in classical music as well. At the library, you can, you know, go into the listening rooms and listen to music. So you you're getting by by sweeping barges and still not doing any woodwork. <laughs> <laughs> no woodwork, no woodwork. Yeah, and um, so you know, my housemates decided they'd be going to Mexico during the school holidays, and I was supposed mm. to join them. I went off to make a phone call, a public phone, uh, at the, at the uh, shopping area. And um, a policeman was there using the phone, and his uh, sidekick was there. And um, I was sort of pacing back and forth, waiting for him to get free of the phone. And anyway, the other guy started talking to me and um, realized, well, you know, I told him what I was doing and whatever, mm. uh, pretty much everything. And they decided to take me down to the headquarters and interrogate me some more. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. And they realized that uh, basically I didn't have a job. Oh. And so they charged me with no visible means of support. And um, so I spent the night in jail. And the next morning went to court with about uh, 30 other people. And most of them were black. And um, I remember that one one young one. He was like maybe sixteen. I think he was still he got he was married, but he's working at a service station. And his story was that um, the service station was giving away a set of glasses when you filled up with fuel. Mm. Yes. Anyway, this guy, uh, white guy, said uh, he didn't he didn't he didn't fill up. He got half a tank, but he still wanted his glasses. And uh, the 
the black guy said, no, well, I can't do that, you know. Mm. <laughs> anyway, he he was charged with something, you know, um, being being rude or whatever. <laughs> anyway, this this judge, he sentenced everybody uh, out, out of the city. And so I, I went to a, a farm. Um, <laughs> I can't believe this is... It's part of your story. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, it, it forms, you know, a core thing about me, but I don't tell many people. I haven't no. told any um, Anyway, at the farm, it turns out that there are other people there from the north, and uh, they're just picked up for hitchhiking, and they're thrown in jail. And they, they do an FBI check on you and all that kind of thing. And um, anyway... We we white guys from the north sort of hung out together, and, you know. We we're 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 actually playing horseshoes with the blacks, and the, the white the white southerners would come up to us and sort of berate us for doing that, you know. Mm. <laughs> In any event, we are um, talking uh, the '60s here, aren't we? The early '60s. We're talking, talking about deep south. Yeah. And Louisiana is a particularly, I'd almost say, a fascist state. Uh, it had a a real um, demagogue in the 30s, Huey Long, and um, that culture sort of remained. So they pick up anybody who was um, you know, hitchhiking or anything like that. I met these guys who were, I suppose, the, the original hippies. They were, they were going to India, yeah. an ashram. You know, I've heard of this stuff, but, you know. Yeah, so... Uh, I finally got out because I, I finally got a phone call through to one of the lecturers at Louisiana State, who's actually a swimming coach. And um, and I guess the, the police were just waiting for me to make some sort of contact with somebody. Because yeah. the, the friends, my housemates, were in Mexico. Yeah. Two weeks. So I got out. And I remember being driven by these two um, white policemen, and uh, and that you know the, the the you know black guy would be walking down the street, and they they gestured with their hands that they're going to shoot them, you know, with a finger, you know, and and call them you know niggers and the rest of it. So I decided this place was not for me. Yeah, <laughs> I got to get out of here. And I, you know, I actually ended up hitchhiking out of there. And, um, <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty uh, dangerous. I got across to um, Mississippi, and then uh, I was picked up by an FBI agent from, but he was a northerner from Virginia, yeah. <laughs> and he understood exactly. And but he just drove me to Virginia. Wow. So um, I'll cut that there, but you know. I've got a real bad attitude to the United States, and especially the South. Mm. And I was ready to get out of that place. Yeah. And that was, that was the real reason for me to go to Australia. Yeah, and really. But you don't move until 1973. Uh, no, after that. 1977. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, yeah well, look, I, I went to, I, I ended up in, um, in um, Australia in 1962. Oh, did you? Yeah. So I I decided to uh, go to the ANU in uh, literature and um, philosophy. And the ANU is the Australian National University in That's our right. national yeah. cam national mm. capital of Canberra. That's right. Which is a reasonably prestigious university, but at the nineteen sixty two, very new. Yeah, it was, 
Because they were starting it off, they they put a lot of money into it. They yeah. they really hired very very good people. I had some of the best teachers ever. You know, yeah. far better than what I was exposed to at Yale. Yeah, right. um, I had A.D. Hope for for poetry and yeah, gosh. Dorothy Green for uh, drama. Yeah. Dorothy Hewitt for literature. Yeah, these are all big names in Australian literature. Yeah. And, yeah. So there I am in the ANU, and um, I, <laughs> sorry, this is going on, but you, you can. No, no, I want you to go on. I, this is this is something. Yeah, yeah please <laughs> take as long as you want. <laughs> I've got all night. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I had I, I worked night shift at the government printers and uh, reading the Hansard, which was the the government um, record of Parliament. They write down so, everything that's said. That's right, everything before it's uh, invented. And just, uh, well, going forward very quickly to 1966, I married uh, a person I met at the ANU. <laughs> Ironically, she was a mathematician. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that was in 1966. I had a call up to Vietnam War. What did you do? Um, they wouldn't do a, a medical in Australia. So I, had, I returned to the States. So did did you have choices when that happened? Not really. I mean, you you called up. Uh, well, I, mean, I, I suppose I could have uh, renounced my citizenship. I yeah, okay. Wasn't prepared for that. You might have, I, you might have uh, equally got called up from to join the Australian Army. Perhaps too. Yeah. Yeah. If you had renounced your citizenship, so you kind of so, look. You've got. Oh. Yeah, you've yeah. got a you've got a new wife, and all of a sudden you've got to get back to the states. And what happens? Well, I returned to Yale. I worked at the Yale Library, yeah. and, and my wife worked at the computer center. What are we talking? The the mid to late sixties is kind of like it's it must still have the been yeah. Yeah. sixty six. Mm. It must have been like so exciting in that environment. Well, it was, and it, it built. It built big time. I forget exactly when I was called up. But I remember being on the bus going to my um, induction center, and you do the medical and all that. And yeah. there must have there was you know forty five on a bus. There's total from my town was of a hundred, yeah. and they ninety six of us. You're joking. <laughs> yeah. So basically, your your whole <laughs> town could yeah, be potentially wiped out. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, because of my Crohn's disease, I went to my doctor. He said, "No, this can't happen," and uh, I got out on a medical deferment. Did, um, you, did you have to go and work in some subsidiary um, no. army or? No, the medical said, you know, it wasn't, yeah, medical is just pure medical. Yeah. So, but I did, I did join the anti-war movement. Yeah. Uh, it pretty much started at Yale. And um, I joined the um, uh, Eugene McCarthy movement for president and joined the, the political saga. And we started in New Hampshire, and we won the primary in New Hampshire, and we yeah. won the primary in uh, Wisconsin, and we were on our way to uh, Oregon. We were in Oregon. When I hear the name McCarthy, I I, hear, I think of Cold War. You think of Joe, Joe McCarthy? Yeah, yeah, different person. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Eugene was uh, he was he's the only one to stand up. Yeah. Right. And Bobby Kennedy held back. Mm. And didn't think that he, 
you know, had much of a chance against huge, uh, against um, Lyndon Johnson. But when we won the primary in Wisconsin, Johnson was, uh, said he would not seek a second term. Because and, of that. Because of that. Yeah. It was a political calculation. On, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. But everything started really going back downhill after that. Uh, in in Oregon, well, we were up against Bobby Kennedy's group, his supporters. Yeah. And then he was in San Francisco and he got assassinated. So the whole thing fell apart. We had, we had a hard time getting, getting back to New York. There was no money. Yeah. <laughs> we, not, we, got, we were offered a ride on the, on a helicopter that was taking the news, the news commentator Walter Cronkite back to New York. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you both, you and your wife, are politically active, like hugely politically active, right up, right up in there. And are you still politically active? No, I don't. No. What I'm happened? pretty much. Well, I got back to New York, not Connecticut. I pretty much, I don't know, but I. I embraced the um, the Socialist Party, even the Black Panthers, the the anti-war movement, anti uh, you know movement. We go to demonstrations uh, around the Pentagon, and then moved to New York City in that period. Decided I, I really wanted to be a writer. I had that in my mind anyway. I was doing that at Yale um, yeah. Library. Um, what sort of things did you want to write? Plays, plays, yeah. yeah. But I, I, my mind was in far too much turmoil with everything going on. So we, my wife and I moved to Darris, uh, South Coast, for, uh, you know, an agreed year off. She, she was working um, in New York, uh, a corporate thing, Ernst & Young, I think, first. That's very corporate. <laughs> Oh yeah. Oh, it got worse. It was Citicorp after that. That <laughs> 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 allowed me to pursue my my artistic world. Anyway, we lived in the South Coast, and you know, we grew vegetables, read a lot, learned to fish, bought prawns, got abalone, met some good people. Yeah, in a little bit over a year, we returned to New York City with, I guess, a a clear head. I mean, I I just wanted to do playwriting. Yeah. The, the politics was over. I think Nixon was in. I joined the New York Theater Ensemble on the two East Street, the Lower East Side, and uh, it was plays produced by uh, you know playwrights, directors, and actors, all all of um. Uh, on amateur basis, all yeah. you know, okay. So that was cool. Did about three three plays there. Uh, I lived at uh, Lexington Avenue between twenty seven twenty eight streets. Lexington and Avenue. That's um, pardon me for bringing up music again, but that's uh, Lexington's in Lou Reed song. Say that again. Lexington Avenue is mentioned in the Lou Reed song "Take a Walk on the Wild Side." He goes. Oh up. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, what's it like living in New York on Lexington? It was beautiful. It was great. 
back then. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was rough. It was not like now. It was pretty rough. Yeah, yeah. I had a van, and it got you know severely tagged by um, spray painters and whatever. My wife was um, held up mm-hmm. at, at the apartment. Um, oh God! Yeah, all of that, and and it was a it was a pretty you know it was, it, well. It, the city actually was uh, bankrupt at the time. And corrupt. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, I was actually called up to um, be on the um, grand jury, and it was investigating police corruption. Yeah, wow. <laughs> the bloody thing ran for two two or three years. That's a big whack yeah. out of your life, though, isn't it? I can appreciate you wouldn't want to do it. Yeah, yeah. Look, it was only one day, one or two days a week. It was all right. It was okay. Yeah, but, mm. but it was very much like Serpico. And they they found charges against you know low level policemen, but nothing nothing really high. They couldn't they nothing that would stick. No. Yeah, it was it was trivial sort of stuff, you know, uh, taking taking ten dollars, you know, from guys who are gambling on the sidewalk. <laughs> yeah, but this is the environment you you're living in in the late 60s, early 70s now. and Yeah, this is the early 70s. Early yeah. 70s, yeah. And um, so you moved to New York. Your, your wife is in corporate world, and you're writing and uh, producing plays on the Lower East yeah. Side. Yeah. And starting to get content. Are you feeling like it's it's all happening for you? On one level, yeah. I mean, we, you know, we, we had, the, had the city worked out. We did all the things we needed to do. Like on weekends, Central Park, yeah. all that. Mm. And during the middle of the week, you can go to um, openings, uh, theater openings, really cheap. You know, they're they're doing premieres. Uh, yeah, lots and lots of that kind of thing. Met met poets and you know all that sort of thing. It was great. But then you know, like the writing for me was hard work. Um, I'm not a natural at it. And to be successful in that game, you really got to be very productive. And um, I, I, I was going against the grain. Uh, my my kind of writing was more abstract and um, surreal, I suppose. And theater was going much more naturalistic, and uh, it wasn't my game. And it was hard work, very lonely. And that's when I happened to be walking around my neighborhood and saw this um, impressions in wood just over the next street on Third Avenue. And um, the wood in there, I mean. Everything was, um, you know, California-style sort of soft edges and shaped and all that kind of thing, something I've never seen before. So they were looking for um, an apprentice. And what they meant by an apprentice is someone who worked for a dollar an hour. Yeah. I think they're called <laughs> interns now, aren't they? Yeah. And, uh, you know, you're given a grinder and start sanding and yeah. shaping. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. So they were making that gallery was actually producing furniture for sale as opposed as opposed to buying or commissioning works from makers around the country. It was commissioning. I mean, it would take commissions. Yeah. I would say mostly in New York. It didn't have a big reach, I don't believe. But we, you know, it was heavily influenced by Nakashima and um, Wendell Castle. Wendell Castle, yeah. And Wendell Castle was doing stacked laminated furniture back then. And, you know, that required an awful lot of shaping and grinding and sanding and whatever. Yeah. And I'd, I'd have to encourage listeners out there that aren't woodworkers to 
check out George Nakashima and also Wendell Castle's work. Yeah. They are two of the very, very big names in studio furniture in Absolutely. the second half of the 20th century from the States. Yeah. Mm. Indeed. Indeed, yeah. And, and totally different, you know, I mean, from each other and from the mainstream. Yeah. Couple. Yeah, I think Wendell Castle especially because he's more of a sculptor. George Nakashima took, he definitely uh, stylistically took from traditional forms and made them his own. Oh, he's, a, yeah, he, he was the original hippie. <laughs> 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 he went to the ashrams in the 1950s, you know? Yeah, he was, he, he did, didn't, that's, that's, that's yeah, right. Yeah, mm. I think, Pondicherry. I mean, he was, uh, he was in, um, his family were, um, interned during the Second World War. Mm. So he had a, a bit of a fraught kind of relationship with the US as well. I yeah, think. did you know him? Did you know Wendell Castle? No, never met them, never. We had a, a foreman at Impressions of Wood who used to work for Nakashima, uh, Gino Russo, and, uh, you know, fantastic Italian, started apprenticeship when he was 12, and all that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. So it was a whole world, and we and the workshop was underneath the the um, the, the gallery yeah. floor. There was about seven of us in there, and I learned everything there. Yeah, it was you you were thrown in, and your your work your fellow workers uh, show you the way, and you go. Like, um, is this something that you you just fell in love with, like actually making things, or was it more the end result? Oh, uh, look, it was both. It was a process. I I forgot to mention it. When I when I dropped out of Yale, I worked for a period of time to earn some money to come to Australia at uh, as a in an auto body shop for Volkswagen, and I was doing the preparation for the spray painter. So I really had a sense of you know fine sanding and mm. all that kind of. Stuff. And I, I yeah I, yeah I really um. It, it's it, it comes to me naturally, and so I, I never look at it, when I was in Impressions of Wood. It was it was a full on passion. Yeah. Uh, however, I still have the Crohn's disease, and I still have health breakdowns. So I have to have a period of, of bed rest. And at those times, I, you know, I read some of the classical books of cabinet making and yeah. and learn all that side of things as well. So. Yeah, You'd, of course. There's no new YouTube in that time. In fact, no. it, it... yeah, I don't know. I think sometimes reading the things you take things a bit slower. And mm. um, I, I remember, I think it's Ernest Joyce, which is the uh, Encyclopedia of Furniture Making. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah, still in print, I would think. <laughs> And if not, get yourself a second-hand copy because yeah. it's great. It's a great little Bible. Were you selling in the gallery as well or was it just under underneath no. the floorboards? And... No. Uh, look, I made one thing um, and they, they put it on the floor. It was a pretty far-out sort of structure with a glass top, you know, it was a low table. Mm. No, but we left there pretty early. I mean, we being myself and two or three other people there and we we formed a share workshop for the Lower East Side off, off Bleecker Street and that was you know again totally exciting lots of work um, where did you get your I work was, from uh, I just put my ad in the Village Voice 
and people would respond to it. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it was good. Did you – were you able to support yourself no, at this point? I, so you, I still needed my wife's income. Yeah. yeah no, no doubt about it. If you didn't have your wife's income, let's sort of uh, – would do you reckon you would have done it anyway? I don't know. You know – Strangely enough, at the same time, the same, roughly the same period, and the same location, Peter Korn was starting out. Peter Korn from the school in Maine. Yeah, right. Do you know him? Do you know the no, name? No, I don't. I don't know him. I know, there's a, I know that there is a school in Maine that's yeah. highly respected and lots of Australians yeah. disappear to Maine once a year. Mm. And I think he ended up working himself to a point where he ended up in the hospital. Yeah. Now I'm not sure whether that was, you know, a cancer thing or just just sheer exhaustion. I can't recall. But mm. look, it's really hard, really, really, really hard to make a go. I, I'm really impressed that young people can make a go in the cities these days. Uh, I wonder if, like you, they've got some sort of backing, or like you back then, you've got, or maybe. Mm. Just got to sort of try and get my head together on this, but it, there's a sense that if you could do anything else, you would go and do it. Mm. Well, would you? No, no. I, you know, you work, work, work uh, as a salary person. You mean? Yeah, or anything else. Mm. You know, running a gallery, for instance, or whatever. You know, you take your pick. For yeah. me, as a young man, when I started doing uh, furniture making, it, that was it. Like. You, in, in impressions in wood, it was all-consuming. Yeah, yeah. There was nothing else I could do. I just had mm. to do it. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And plenty of dreams and everything, you know, just bang on. Yeah. So I'm, not, I'm, I'm noticing now contemporaries, I'm not my contemporaries, but young ones working in Sydney and Melbourne, Canberra, and I just, I just feel they're on the edge of burnout. Yeah. Yeah. Is that I, always the case, though? I think it is. This re- some find it, you know, the people. Some of the people I work with in in New York. My partner back then, he ended up moving to Brooklyn and working there, and he hooked up with a a French architect that did interior renovations mm. and didn't do much solid work. It was all all sheet work. That lasted him, you know, his entire working life. Yeah. Some make it, you know. But you, you make compromises along the way, I think. I think that's inevitable, and I think that's something you need to embrace. I think so, yeah. You know, you're still involved in the challenges, whether it's veneer work or solid. There's plenty of, plenty of things to get your head around. Mm. Um, but my, my, my partner... Even when I went back to visit him, he kind of was um, apologizing for the fact that he wasn't <laughs> keeping to the in a way. <laughs> don't worry about that. No, don't apologize because you know what? You've, you've got to do what you've got to do. And yeah. there's no, no – there shouldn't be any um, judgment on whether or not somebody works in MDF or chipboard or no, no. maple or mahogany or whatever. I mean, God, if you – doing something you want to do and you're not unhappy, then for heaven's sake, please continue. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. And it's paying the bills. Yeah. One of the questions I've got 
with pretty much everyone I'm talking to is how long did it take before you felt your business was sustainable? I'm, I'm asking the people that have got sustainable businesses, but I'm asking it on behalf of everyone that is really out there and what you're talking about on the edge of burnout. Working, 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 just struggle to make ends meet, to find the next client, to satisfy clients. And um, I, I hope I can provide some sort of encouragement that it can be done. Say yes to everything or we do what you have to do to make it work. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that happens within a year or two years. Perhaps it might take 10, 15 years before you think, yep, okay, I can actually see how this is going to work for the next 10 years. Yeah, yeah. And um, don't expect to earn heaps of dollars. Just don't. Oh, no, no. It's, it's lifestyle, really. It's lifestyle. It's, if, you, if you can do something else, go and do that. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm struck by the amount of debt that some young makers are taking on. Yeah, really. I would be too, I think. I'm surprised at that. I'd probably not encourage a situation of debt. Although that environment can make you really super hungry and Mm -hmm. that hunger can make it work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would think, though, that you could do exactly the same work on really modest machinery. I'm sure the debt's going into machines. I agree. I, do I don't think you need an Altendorf when you can have a circular yeah. saw. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't mean your work's going to be any different, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, look, and when I need a big machine, I go and... You go and borrow it. I borrow it, yeah. I, yeah. You know, Did I pay someone. Mm. Yeah, I pay someone. Yeah, you yeah. pay someone. That's right. You need a CNC, yeah. go and find right. one. Yep, you need a yeah. thickness sander. Go and That's find right. one. Your mate's got one. Go and use it. Yeah. Yep. Give him a carton of beer or something. Yeah. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I don't mind paying, you know, even top dollar for that. I'm not asking for any special deal, you know. Yeah. But I know... Your yeah. machines cost X amount of dollars per hour and all that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, that's right. And plus you end up ha- getting out of your isolation and you're talking to somebody and you never exactly know. Exactly right. You never yeah. know. Mm-hmm. I love that part of the game. I really do love, you know, uh, collaborations and yeah. just chatting with others. Yeah. yeah, look, it's pretty important, isn't it? That's mm. that's what we're doing here, in fact. That's right, mm. yeah. Anyway, let's go back to New York. You're still in New York and you haven't moved out to yeah. New South Wales yet. Yeah, so Lower East Side workshop there. Fantastic memories. <laughs> yeah. All very rough. We're on the third or fourth floor and uh, – with an elevator that sort of worked, <laughs> sometimes didn't. <laughs> I guess you, you can't make anything that won't fit in that elevator or go down the stairs. I suppose yeah. that's something. Yeah. Oh, the things you get into, you know. I, with this partner of mine, and, and he and I had his job. Was well, mostly his job, but I was. I had a van, and so I was very useful in delivering <laughs> stuff and helping. Out. <laughs> and. Um, we we had this uh, fit out to do an apartment. He made all the bits. <laughs> yeah. We got there. First of all, you had to pay the the doorman a certain amount of money in order to clock there. <laughs> yeah. And then the elevator didn't didn't wasn't roomy enough for the things. So we ended up, you know, removing the top panel and having these long sticks 
poking through and riding on the top of the elevator. Oh, you're joking. <laughs> you believe it. <laughs> Do you know, uh, look, everybody that's ever done work on a site or taken something to install knows how it feels when you know you're going to have to take the top off something because it won't fit or because you just have to. It's it's a terrible feeling. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. Somehow you survive. And, yeah. uh <laughs> Life goes on. I had a great little job uh, delivering um, uh, temple furniture, Jewish furniture to um, – New Jersey, with a guy who specialized in um, temple furniture, yeah. who actually shared a loft in Soho with a black guy who, who <laughs> specialized in doing work for Anglican or uh, Protestant churches. Yeah. Right. <laughs> anyway, we got to this. Uh, we got to the synagogue on a Friday afternoon, and the rabbi says to us, "I hope you're not going to work here after mid after sundown." Yeah, <laughs> and uh, he gave us yarmulkes. You have to wear these yarmulkes yeah. when you're. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the... yeah. Anyway, yeah, these you know just wonderful stories. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow, through it all, I guess we got to keep moving along. Yeah, we can look honestly, Dave. We can take as long as you want. I mean, the stories are, are, are you know, look, please keep them coming. <laughs> oh, stories are great. Yeah. Stories are what we're you here know, for. Mm. New York was wonderful back then. We actually lived in a pretty good apartment and um, on the second floor. Yeah, uh, did all the right things, you know, ice skating in Central Park and Rockefeller mm. Center. You know, and they would rock concerts and good stuff. But you do leave. Yeah, I do leave. Yeah, we, we, hang, we hung around. I think I was ready to go in about 1975, 76, but we hung around for the uh, by, uh, tricentennial, yeah. which is... Uh, 1976 and uh, great parties you know on top of apartments and watching the the boats come in the harbor and everything so by 77 ready to pack up and i packed up all my machinery and some timber in crates and everything and um traveled to australia via england and then uh, ended up in perth and took the train across Ended up in Bungendore. I, I I had arranged to um, buy a place uh, through my uh, father-in-law, and I just said, "Look, I need some space. I need I need electricity, mm. a house, and maybe a shed. I didn't care about the quality of the land. Well, that landed me in Bungendore. <laughs> the land's not very good. <laughs> What's what were the farmers in Bungendore farming? Sheep. Yeah. Basically, and yeah. if anyone knows anything about farming, if you're farming sheep, you're talking rocks and little hills and not yeah. much grass, and it can't do dairy because there's no water. And yeah, oh yeah, all of that. Yeah, and they're they're, they're you know they're kind of at the low end of the social scale. Bungendore is low end. Uh, it, it it the, the village itself and the houses were cottages for. Uh, laborers, you know, rural yeah. laborers. Yeah. Just uh, before, right. just before we you go on there, mm. you're aiming for Canberra. I'm taking it, and to, to people that don't know where Bungendore or Canberra is, Bungendore is about forty five minutes drive, forty minutes drive from Canberra, and Canberra is a long way from the ocean, so it's right 
smack bang between Sydney and Melbourne. There's not much around it. It's a little island of city, but Bungendore is one of its outliers. Mm. And, and I'm guessing you're aiming for Canberra but can't hit it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Look, I, uh, uh, you know, no, uh, it was very, very um, strategic. Yeah. I did not. I did not want to live in Canberra. If you lived in Canberra, you had to have a mortgage. If you had to have a mortgage, you had to work in the public service to service the mortgage. And that is my override message to young people: If you're living in the big cities, you're going to pay the big rent. Pay the big rent, you gotta you gotta hustle. And um, as we've said, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can make things tough when it is tough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Look, I mean, Bungendore has house prices on the par with Canberra now, but back yeah. then it was really cheap. Yeah. The other thing that's really beneficial about Bungendore is, as a little village, is that it, it's on the way to the coast for Canberrans, and Canberrans yeah. are completely – they're coast-sick, aren't they? Yeah, they are, yeah. They kind of pine for the sea, even though it's like two hours' drive away. Uh, it's only an hour and a half. Yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> yeah. We're yeah, just painting yeah. a picture here, David. So, you know, and so they're going, if they want to go to the, the sea, they're going to go to a little place called Bateman's Bay, which is absolutely gorgeous. And you, if you want to go to Bateman's Bay, you're going to drive through the little village of Bungendore. That's right. Yep. And there's about two to three million car movements every year yeah. along the coast road. And uh, there's no bypass, even still. No, no. They keep talking about it. I'm no. sure. Could be another ten years, I think. Yeah, maybe we can talk about that later. But that's uh, more for the for the residents of Bungalow to worry about than us here. Yeah. Anyway, did you figure that the location of Bungendore on the way to the coast for Canberrans was going to be something that was going to be beneficial to you at the time? Or I, did. It... I did. I did. Yeah. yeah. Always had the vision that Bungendore would be a pretty special place with high end kind of galleries. Yeah. And, and shops never come about, but you know, I really wanted more more thing, more businesses like like the woodworks around. It's okay; they're getting by. The businesses are getting by, but they're servicing locals a lot. Yeah, apart from the woodworks gallery itself, which is servicing Canberrans, I would think. Mm. Yeah, we had an interesting story this morning. We we picked up a. A piece of furniture from um, Ralph Bulford in Canberra mm. uh, to go to some clients in Canberra. And she'd been shopping at the Woodworks for years. And um, she just said the Woodworks is a legend. Mm. <laughs> you know, uh, that's the sort of loyalty we, we have. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask you a lot about the Woodworks, uh, but perhaps we'll just get back to just this story. We're in the early eight, 1980s, I guess, and you've come... Uh, you, yep. Well, I arrived in Bungendore in 1977. So there's a whole... There's about six years before I opened the woodworks. Yeah. So I'm, I'm living a life of self-sufficiency and raising children. Yeah, right. And you, your wife is with you? She's, yeah. She's working at the A&U or... I'm not working at all, no. Yeah, right. Yeah, so we're, we're living off... Some earnings, modest earnings from New York. Yeah, you know, growing vegetables. I'm I'm really big into permaculture, yeah. all that kind. Of. How did that go down with the Bungendore locals? <laughs> oh, look, they didn't even know about us. 
we, we, <laughs> we just stuck by ourselves. So, yeah. You know. Yeah. And then uh, coming up to 1983, that's when I, my marriage broke up mm. and uh, my health broke down. Mm. I ended up in a hospital. Mm. It was the same year that I opened the woodworks. Can you believe it? Wow. <laughs> yeah. And if you looked at it, you would say, this is a recipe for disaster. Uh, somehow it pulled through, you know. Mm. There must have been something going on in that time, in that part of the world, that made it okay and made it doable. Yeah, I think I was very, very, very fortunate. Yeah. Things really happened in 1983. George Ingham opened up the School of Art workshop. In the woodwork, and George Ingham is from Britain. He's He's from Britain, yeah. He's the brother of Robert Robert Ingham, who was the lecturer in Parnham with John Ratcliffe, and he comes from um, a very strong design tradition and is a marvellous maker. Yeah, yeah. And he comes to Canberra, he's uh, invited to start the wood workshop. At the same time, Dave, David O'Brien arrived from Parnham and settled in Tharwa and set up his workshop there, mm. along with Chris McElhinney. And the other important part, the other important part of the story, from my perspective, is that the ACT wood group was very vibrant. Okay. And it was a meeting place for all of us. That's where I met George and David. Yeah. And others. And it was really good. I mean, you, you've got an organization that's, that's built around amateurs, but everyone was there. And it was, it, it, the chemistry was great. Yeah. It was welcoming and, and there was not a, and no elitism or anything, you know? Yeah. Really- the story I've had about all the wood groups in pretty much every state in the early 80s was the same mixtures of professionals and amateurs. And coming mm-hmm. together and really doing some pretty amazing things, getting it all together, making it work. Mm-hmm. Uh, these days, you won't find a professional being a member of a local. Oh, look, that's not true. That's not true. In in Victoria, they are. Yes, they Probably are. In New South Wales too, but mm. other states, it's stratified. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm. And to the detriment of all the parties involved. Yeah. Absolutely. The other thing that's happening, starting to happen in the early 1980s is that the new Parliament House for Australia is getting built in Canberra. It's it's a multi-billion dollar project and there's plenty of craft and art Mm. that's going to get commissioned Mm. for that building. And all around the country, there's a whole lot of people working towards this common goal of a new Parliament House in Australia. And that's going to get open, I think, in the early 90s. But anyway, it's it's aiming for 1988, which is the... 89, I think, 88, 89. 89, yeah. which is the bicentennial of Australia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But in 1983, it would have been pretty well underway and uh, there would have been a lot of activity going on associated with that and ways for people to make a living. Indeed, indeed. Yes. Familberg was tasked with the project of, of 
going around and visiting all of the woodworkers who would be involved. Mm, not just woodworkers, but all of the craftspeople, I think. Yeah, yeah. She was the arts and crafts coordinator. And Pamille worked for a group of architects called MGT, Mitchell Jurgoth Thorpe. They were mm. the architects, the principal architects commissioned to build the new Parliament House. That's correct. And what a great vision that was, you know, looking at today's way of thinking. Maybe well, you can unpack what that way of thinking is. Do you think? Well, we, we, do every, we, we do get everything from overseas. Mm. We don't have a, a policy, I think, of, of Australian-made manufacturer, mm. whatever. We survive, but it's... Um, look, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty upset by so many imports from Europe on licensed classical furniture that were made you know, in the 30s and the 40s coming into this Australia and everywhere. Mm. So globalism has changed things a lot. And um, I, I had a friend in, in Sweden who, this is off, 2004, thought we were so lucky in Australia where they, they, were, they were feeling the effects of uh, people in Sweden saying, oh, we're supporting the crafts and, and what they meant by that is they're buying something, a Hans Wegner chair that's made on license and not, not really supporting contemporary makers. So that's my little, <laughs> my little, yeah. uh, look, personally, yeah. I can't talk for anywhere else apart from Australia. There's a, a very, very limited market here in, in this country that would value something genuinely handmade over something that they something would just buy in a factory. And I, I'm not saying it's even a bad thing because some of the factory-made pieces of furniture and any, any product, for that matter, are often better than handmade. And always cheaper. Always cheaper, yeah. So if you're going to put yourself out there as a maker of craft and you're going to do it by hand or call it handmade, even if you use machines or I don't care if you use mm. computers to make it, it makes no yeah. difference. The quality has to match whatever it is you're doing because if you want to compete against something that's made better and way cheaper from a factory, you better do it bloody well. And it's got to communicate that wellness mm. that's that's my game here uh, at the woodworks mm. yeah well you can you can have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the clients that walk in the door yeah yeah it doesn't easily happen for somebody who's making something you know david upfield brown said to me once um, this is so long ago far out he said like if you're going to make something it's going to take you six or eight weeks at a dining table or whatever a couple of chairs mm. that goes with it you're mm. not going to talk to anyone during that time the difference between um somebody in your position where you'd be talking to 20 30 40 people a day Easily, makers don't get that. I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. They don't get that, and the difference. I think I'm going to go out on a limb here too. Like the difference between somebody who's purely a designer and gets other people to do all the making for them is that they've got a lot more time on their hands to market and have a chat to the clients and really, really get good at that because that's a skill. Mm -hmm. And if you don't practice it you're not going to get really good at it. You've got to be able to be in a position to fail talking to a client to actually know how things can possibly go. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
And um, you're going to need to talk to a lot of clients if you're going to get four out of five being a failure or, you know, the client doesn't follow through or whatever. So what am I saying there? I'm just saying that making things takes a long time if you're working in wood. It does. And there are are things that we see here at the gallery that makers don't see. Mm. This is probably a conversation later on. but No, let's have it now. Let's do it now and you can get you no, I just want to do it now. <laughs> yeah, right. um, a simple thing. You know how light-colored light things are, are a fashion, and it has been for a long while. We have some beautiful light-colored balls in the gallery. Beautiful. Beautiful shapes, everything. They don't sell. We mm. know they don't sell. Mm. We rarely get asked for light-colored furniture. Why is that? Is that because... We have a dominance of, of dark-colored items in the gallery. I'm not sure. We create our own environment. I'm not sure. And the other thing is finish. We try to communicate great clarity and mostly clarity to the finish. So we we issue more matte kind of look of mm. things, but not high gloss, but somewhere in between. Mm. And there have been times when people have asked us for something a little bit more glossy. You, you, you know, but there, mm. there are times you'll, you'll get others, but, mm. and we try to offer a diversity. But it's an interesting thing what we see here at this end. I'm kind of caught in the middle. I understand a multiplicity of aesthetics. Uh, I, I, I have my own personal aesthetic, of it, but I don't drive that within the gallery. I kind of let things seek their own level in the gallery. Something comes in, I say, well, you know, okay, yeah. A light-colored bowl, I kind of love it, you know? But it sits here. And if it doesn't sell over a long period of time, I'll I'll buy it and give it to family member, you know? Mm. <laughs> but it tells me about the disconnect to fashion. That the Woodworks Gallery has? Well, I think to the public. Because we're in the public, mm. and the fashion is a different world. The fashion is receiving information from overseas, from, from wherever. I mean, let, let's go into a little bit deeper. We have a multiplicity of, 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 of timbers available to us. Northern Hemisphere makers do not. Their indigenous timbers are all fairly bland, by and large, especially Japanese mm. and Scandinavian. And so that dictates their aesthetics. And why why should we accept their aesthetics when we have our indigenous material to draw from? I find this conversation really, really fascinating because from a maker's point of view, you would want to make something that you want to make, but also that fits within a marketplace that can support that making to take place. Yeah. I wonder if um, makers can compromise their designs to fit a marketplace that is relevant, something that's make something that's actually going to sell and put it in front of that marketplace uh, rather than making a pale coloured bowl that's not going to sell. Actually, okay, make the same bowl but make it out of a different timber. Mm. Don't try and dictate what that market is going to do, but actually follow that market. And I'm going to also say that one way to do that is to give you a phone call. Give anybody in the Woodworks Gallery a phone call and say, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about doing this. Mm -hmm. How would it be placed? Do people do that? 
No, and we're a little reluctant to respond. A little really? bit reluctant. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I would have thought you'd be overjoyed to be able to um, say, okay, well, what we want right now is a circular table because we don't have any. Can you make me one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That the circular, yeah. I'm yeah. Not, look, the circular table. Yeah. Who cares? Doesn't matter. What I'm what I'm getting at is that maybe there's a conversation between you and your client and you and the makers, the making community that creates a full circle and everyone's happy. Mm. If I go back to my time in New York, I, I live in Prescott Wood, and it was all walnut and zebra wood. For some perverse reason, I decided I would go to American white oak. <laughs> it had nothing to do with size or anything. It was just me. <laughs> and I was able to sell that. Yeah, and there you go. And, and I'm, I'm true to myself, you know what mm, I mean? Yeah. You know? yeah. So I'm, I'm very eclectic. I just really, really bristle a bit about fashions and magazines and givens yeah. And departments of design and all that stuff that comes from, you know, universities, I guess. With that <laughs> response, you answer the question on why don't people give you a ring? Because you can say, yeah, we definitely, definitely, definitely want round tables. All of a sudden, you've got 10 round tables in your yeah, workshop. Of <laughs> and nobody wants them anymore. So you're yeah, stuck and with them. Don't sell, I'm, I'm the bunny. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So if somebody, if you say, oh, oh no, a white, a pale wood bowl, nah, it's not going to go. And then all of a sudden you've got an order for 10 of them. You go, yeah. hmm, well, if we didn't have that one pale wood bowl in the, in the gallery, we wouldn't have got any orders. So yeah. Yeah. It, there, there's a kind of like a trade-off between following that market and taking a punt and having a risk. Yep, yep. Look, one other example I'll give you. I've been working with the same wood turner for 20 years. Mm. We do all of our work, just about all of our work, in Australian burl, uh, desert burl. Mm. The only place in the world you can find this stuff. And we account for more than 10% of sales in the gallery. Yeah. It's absolutely no play out there in, in fashion land. No. And I think there's a marvelous opportunity for highlights in furniture using burl. Mm. I mean... It's the same as, as, as ivory or whatever, brass, you know. Mm, I mean, it's mm, just one more material. Mm. It's, it is extraordinary. You, it has been used a lot in the past, like highlights oh, yeah. generally, like all sorts of. Yeah, yeah. By, by, by a little bit unsophisticated, you know. Yeah, it, it, it's used worldwide uh, now. You know, it's being, we're exporting it in big ways to U.S. Yeah. and China. And you see them at markets and whatever. But we, we're trying to do everything we can in terms of turning to create sophisticated sort of uh, resolutions. Yeah. Small product. There's, um, there's a wood turner that's making a pretty good living. He's a production wood turner, has to produce a quota, no doubt, but still mm -hmm. doing it and feeding his family. Oh, he is. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's done well. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's done he well. Uh, and I'm wondering, like, uh, let's tease out this idea that we've been talking about with people that are prepared to work and make towards a market. Is he an unhappy chap or is he just completely passionate about his craft still? Oh, yeah. Look, he, he's, 
he works entirely for me, and, and we have a very close relationship on that regard. Yeah, and and we do we do enormous amount of design work together. On yeah, this. okay, yeah. So it is fully engaged. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you've got a pretty closed loop between the client that you're selling to the maker who's making for you and you as a person that's saying, okay, this is where we can go. I think this could work. Oh, yeah, yeah. Look, we're doing a table now, table of shoes, mm. you know, the, the yeah. stiletto table of shoes for a client who wants it, you know, for their entryway. And no. it's got two shelves and um, requires a few other uh, bits and pieces to it. And, yeah, I'm so impressed what he can do. You know, I, he's... I don't know how he does it, but he seems to with a minimal amount of tools and, and jigs and whatever he he can produce reproduce the same shape over and over again. Mm. Amazing. He's actually very fit. He doesn't have back aches and you know, elbows and the rest of it. He's he's very good. Are we allowed to mention his name? Oh yeah. Jim Holman, South Coast. Yeah. South Coast of New South Wales. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maruya. Area. Maria, yeah, beautiful. God damn, that's a beautiful part of the world. Yeah, and people can look at his work online, can they? Uh, through or the woodworks. Through the woodworks. Yeah, yeah he, doesn't have, he doesn't have his own. He absolutely has no interest in promoting himself whatsoever. No. Speech, yeah. I, I don't stop it, you know. But, no. Yeah. No, what a great relationship, though, hey. It is. But, you really touched on something, and I really do like that kind of game, you know. Yeah. So I'm I'm actually working in terms of furniture making with a, a few young make, young makers, and uh, I find that really brings me back to New York, where there's a lot of that sort of crossover, a lot of cooperation. Yeah, keeps teamwork. Me alive. Hmm? Teamwork, teamwork. Yeah. Mm. Keeps me alive, and they teach you stuff. You know, they they're alive to all kinds of new processes and. Yeah. Yeah, bloody good. And mm. so far in your personal story, we're at 1983. You've just opened the woodworks. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, yeah. So did, I'm going to ask – I'm just going to ask you questions. You can answer them. Did the woodworks mm. take off as a, as a business straight away? Did it just no. go gangbusters? Um, it was slow to start with. We were only open on weekends for maybe a year. Yep. I'm, I'm – I'm sharing the upbringing of, of two children. Yep. You know, and we're doing okay. So we hire somebody. So we're open four days a week. Yeah. Thursday. And we're still doing okay. We're doing better. So we hire somebody else. Hiring people is really important. <laughs> it's like collaboration. You know, you really mm. need people. Uh, okay. So I've said that I'm, I'm sharing the kids. Uh, that's all good. Um, somehow we get we get through it all. Yeah. We build a business somewhere around 1989. I'm, I'm through family. <laughs> the part of my family. Um, uh, look, look, look. I, I've met a I met another woman, and she's got another child, and we we have a we decided to have a blended family, uh, and that's very nice. And she helped me with woodworks, mm. cafeing for many years. Her sister and her partner back then, they ran as a <laughs> the no self government uh, in the ACT uh, first elections. Mm. 
they actually got got a place on on their uh, in the in the government. Yeah, the ACT. I'll just tell listeners who don't know is the Australian Capital Territory, yeah. and that's the uh, in that's the locale where Canberra is located. It's not very big. It's a anyway. It's a territory. The ACT, and it didn't have self government. It was yeah. governed by the federal government, an offshoot of the federal government. Yeah. In terms of politics, uh, two thirds of the electorate said they didn't want any government. Yeah. Uh, they didn't want to go to self government. Yeah. Anyway, these two people. Uh, with no self government, and <laughs> they, <got in. laughs> they <laughs> as you do. It can only happen in the national capital of any country, I reckon. <laughs> anyway, out of all of that, they convinced me to go into the uh, National Tourism Awards. Yeah, right. Yeah, and lo and behold, we we actually won the ACT Tourism Award. In 89 or 90, we kept going at that, 89, sorry, no, 90, 90, 91. And then in 92 and 93, we won the National Tourism Award. That's a big, big one. Wow. <laughs> and they had, in the 92, they had the National Conference in the ACT. And that brought a whole lot of sort of front page stuff to us and visitation, doubled our income. And that led to having an income that looked on the paper good enough for the bank to lend us enough money to um, build a new gallery. Yeah, which is where you're at now. Yeah. Still. Yeah, which was amazing. You know, I, mm. I, <laughs> looking back, it was simply amazing we could do that sort of thing. Uh, we, we built it in 94, and it was really hard getting money back then because mm. that was – um, the recession we had to have. Yeah, look, it's it's at the end. I think the recession's over by '94, but yeah, Australia yeah. had a pretty nasty recession. '93, '94, yeah. It took me a year to find the right kind of builder, any builder actually, any builder. <laughs> I had a great architect, local, yep. great great architect, and we worked on that for about a year because while I'm looking for a builder, no yeah. one believed I could do it. You know, uh, I I, I, I got to communicate to you that. <laughs> <laughs> the old woodworks, locally, I was kind of perce- perceived as just sort of pretty marginal. <laughs> you know, look, I didn't count for much locally. <laughs> That's probably your permaculture background. Yeah. So uh, no builders would take it on. Yeah, really? Is that right? Yeah. So it's not that you can't find a builder because they don't exist. It's because... Oh, they wouldn't do it. Yeah, really. Yeah. Even yeah. though you've yeah. got the funding, you've got the yeah, wow. yeah. They just didn't believe me. You know, finally found somebody in in the ACT. Yep. And he had eight carpenters on the on the go. Loved doing wood things, mm. and we we just brought over this amount of Jarrah from from WA, and it was machined in Sydney and landed on packs, very wet, dripping wet. Yeah. And they started building. And it was amazing. It was built in 16 weeks. Heavens above. Yep. And I'll tell you how much it was. $285,000. Yeah. What's that in today's money, you reckon? Well over $2 million. Mm-hmm. Because I've got a similar ex- um, development on the go next to the woodworks. Yeah. At the moment. $2.2 million. Yeah. Most, and that's, that's like... 
at least three upmarket houses, whereas back then it was one house. And I'll tell you, the increase in cost is a lot to do with insurances mm. and all the layers of council. The inflation oh, yeah. hasn't made it $2 million. It's $2 million to do your development. No, 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 mm. no way, mm. no. Yeah, I'm equating it to the kind of houses you have to build. Yeah. And this place is, you know, 500 square meters, so it's a couple of houses. Yeah. Without, without you know, without kitchens. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Look, so. um, let's go back. And you've so you've built the, the gallery and you've won an award, a couple of awards. A couple of awards, yeah. Got some money together, built a fantastic new gallery, and you're still making furniture, I think. I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somehow I'm doing this, yeah, at the same time. Well, Kathleen's looking after the gallery. Yeah, right. And so at the same time, by the way, yeah, Evan Dunstan, he's working as a tour operator. He's bringing people from Sydney to Melbourne. And one of his favorite stops was the old woodworks across the street. Yeah. And he decided, he, he just loved the place. He just fell in love with the whole idea. So he wanted to work for us. So he, he came over and, um, and um, he, he worked in the woodworks, you know, started right at the bottom doing everything I did, right? Cleaning the floors and, yeah, we, yeah, we, we're, we did all the window sills. You know, originally when their builders came in, we, we ebonized the um, Victorian ash to make them black and mm. all the rest. And then he started working for me. Well, he before that, he, he worked at the gallery. He was doing the um, exhibitions. He was the exhibition manager and doing all the right stuff. Great, yeah. great. And then he started working for me a couple of days a week, three days a week. This is working for you in the in the workshop. Workshop, yeah. yeah. We're, we're going pretty well by then, and we're getting a few orders. We're hiring people. And, wow, this has taken us up to where? Um, about 98. So he's working for me for about six years, and we've uh, we've done a lot of a fair amount of work. I don't, I'm still not sure whether we're ever making money, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I reckon if you can keep paying the bills, you're making money. Otherwise, otherwise you would have just stopped. Yeah, Yeah. look, and I don't, I don't look too closely. It's not good. (laughs) You want to keep going. Anyway, yeah, we've got a lot of orders on. We we got about seven tables, a lot of chairs, and then we got the big fire. Yeah, and everything's gone. Absolutely everything. All the tools, all the jigs, all everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I I can't imagine how devastating that was. Yeah, because look, how can we how can we sort of illustrate this if. Like me, and probably like you, the studio and the workshop is your identity, your life. If it's your life and you lose part of that life, it's going to be emotionally destructive. Mm, mm. Was there anything that good, or anything good that came out of that fire? I think, I think so. Yeah. First of all, the community and the fire brigade. This this fire started at two a.m. in the morning. They on a Sunday, on a Monday morning. Yeah. 2 a.m. And they were all out there within half an hour. Wow. Yeah. So that was beautiful. That is one of the things about rural communities in Australia and probably probably rural communities around the world. When there's a fire, people get together. Man, do yeah. they get together. It's the one thing that galvanizes a community. Mm. 
not maybe one thing, there might be others, but that <laughs> particularly one that really does galvanise it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, that, and that's, yeah, look. And looking at the good side, look, look, I couldn't look in that direction for about four years. Yeah. I, I'd back out of my drive and just go into a gallery. I yeah. made a very, very, very conscious decision at that point. I said, look, I can rebuild. I can do that. No problem. I can do all that. I said, no, I don't want to rebuild. I made a choice. I'll go back to the woodworks. And there's an underlying kind of thread in my life. I'm really, really not attached to a lot of stuff. Mm. This reminded me that I am not attached to a lot of stuff. My machines, my material, all of that stuff. And that, that brought me back to home. Yeah. So the takeaway is... Well, the takeaway was that we built the gallery at that point. A few people came on board, and they just came on board. And I don't know why, but I had Stan Dodgeville and Amanda Shelley. Yeah. And that became the, the core background to the, to the gallery. And we, and we built, you know, we had a, a wonderful time. And the gallery did well. It was surprising to me. I mean... In 94, the place was looking terribly empty, and I didn't know what the hell we were going to do. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. And everyone said to me, man, you're crazy. Well, absolutely crazy. Yeah. And and for your listeners, all I'm going to say is you just follow your dreams. Yeah. Look, turn that Hailwood bowl. Indeed. Sometimes <laughs> you just got to do it, man. You just got to do it. You got to do it. You got you you to risk failure. Mm. And uh, yeah, you built the space, and look, we made our name in the old place. But people came to the gallery. I mean, I'm talking about Stan and Amanda and others. You know, mm. Rose, everyone. You know, they, we had such good people come to the gallery because we had credibility within the town. Finally, yeah, and out there, and so. I think after you've won a couple of major awards, mm. You, mm. you know, like if people don't start standing up and taking notice, then well, they just yeah. they're just not ever going to yeah, stand look, up and take notice. So. Oh look, and we went on to do other awards. You know, mm. we oh look, we had well, we did one in ninety four, ninety eight, two thousand, two thousand one, mm. two thousand seven, two thousand ACT Tourism Awards, and we had various retailer awards in uh, New South Wales and ACT, all those things. And we, we did concerts, we did big exhibitions, and what was I doing? I don't, I don't know. You know, I, I, I was here, and I wasn't working in the workshop. Somewhere along the line, I, I, I rebuilt the workshop, mm. and it was always just for me. Yeah, right. It forced me, I think, even more so. I, now I remember, yeah. I was doing more design work because uh, my son Phil joined mm. us and he had great uh, abilities in, in, in digital design. And I did some amazing, well, we did some amazing stuff. And I reached out to various makers all throughout Canberra who made some very interesting stuff. Mm. And But built the gallery at the same time. In 98, yeah, well, that's, 98 was the fire, more or less, 98, 99, that's when I came across Jim, yeah, 
I mean, there's there's a clear story of persistence and tenacity and, you know, getting up when you've been kicked down and doing it again and doing it again and, and a mm. super amount of hard work. Mm. Well, I, I don't look at it as hard. I just, you know, you're, you're active and you do stuff. Yeah. I guess I had more more time to go overseas. So I, I, I went to Sweden a number of times. Oh, I, yeah. Uh, we opened the gallery up to a, a Swedish maker, Pierre Branstad, mm. in 94, and that created a, an opening and back and forth. And then in 2008, oh, yeah, yeah, we went over there, and uh, Matthew Harding and my daughter had hooked up by then. And, yeah. and they went over for a big sort of international sort of uh, workshop. Mm. That was cool. That was very cool. Maybe now is a good time to have a chat about who Matthew Harding is. Mm. Uh, mm. Are you okay to do that? Mm. Yeah, sure. Matthew was uh, just the most beautiful man, hugely yeah. talented designer and maker and multi-materials and big, small, mm. did it pretty much. He did pretty much everything, didn't he? Mm. And he um, it was a, a huge tragedy for everyone that ever met him and i'm just going to say everyone that never did that he took his own life mm. not so long ago and he was a big part of your life i just wonder if you can like talk to his legacy oh yeah look i'd love to tell the story where um my daughter met him uh, at, at first and uh, she she accompanied um hermione uphill brown to a, a conference about um, australian made at the anu right and Matthew was there. Mm. <laughs> and Matthew took a shine to a writer, writer yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> and look, she's 17. She's working for the gallery then. And he's, oh, <laughs> 17. He's, he must be 31. He's 14 he, years. <laughs> yeah, 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 I know he was over 30. Yeah. 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 And he, he mentions, who's that girl? Yeah. <laughs> She said to him, now, now Matthew, <laughs> she's a young girl now. You keep your hands off. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they had some sort of get-together, and for various other reasons within, within her life, she decided to go overseas for about five years. And when she came back, Matthew still, uh, he's calling me and said, well, you know, I'd like to get in touch with your daughter. All right, well, you know, I'm not standing your way kind of thing. And so we had a number of conversations. And anyway, eventually they, they, they had various conversations. <laughs> she came back to me one night and said, you know, I had dinner with him the other night, you know, and all he does is talk about himself. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. Yeah. Okay. He's, I said, well, I guess that's over. Yeah. All right. Yeah. He's, he's trying went, desperately oh. to impress her, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, you look, I, I love the guy. You know, he yeah, was. Me too. He's one of me, you know. Mm, look, just, just a, a beautiful human being. Mm. So, um, look, troubled and um, passionate. Mm caring yeah 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 uh, i miss him yeah look and they they were very very similar in a lot of ways you know they just, they just went for it had the four kids right away you know yeah <laughs> yeah 
Oh, that look when uh, Matthew died, I was so angry with him. Yeah, me too. And I was angry with him because he has four. He left four children, and the youngest, uh, the youngest probably won't ever ever remember him. Mm. Too young. Mm. Don't know the full details, and I never will. But it's so sad. Look, mate, there's so many, so many issues there, and it comes down to the, the world of an artist is really, really hard. Mm. Uh, I don't think it's worth it. I don't think making a success or having an ambition to do it big in any profession is worth a life. I agree with you. I agree. Yeah. And when you when you mentioned way back in this conversation about making compromises, I think that's where you got to go. You got to survive. We are. I, I've often said, I've often regarded myself as a kind of a secret agent. You know, you're you're in a materialist world. Mm. You're living in as an artist. You gotta make. You gotta make it. Mm. You gotta survive. But the thing, yeah, look, he had too high a regard for that, that talisman of art. Mm. And I think that undid him a bit. Mm. Yeah, because you can, if you, if, if you put an idea up on a pedestal and you can't ever achieve that idea, you're going mm. to fail. And if you fail too much for too long, Regardless of what anyone else thinks, and everyone thinks Matthew's work is amazing, and mm. who out there is not jealous of what he his built work and what he was capable of, all the things he didn't make? Mm. He wouldn't. He wouldn't listen. He wouldn't be able to hear that message that no. um, you're perfect the way you are. You don't have to achieve anything else. And I think that's a tragedy. Mm. It, it gave him his in, incredible energy, but it was also his undoing. Yeah. I think you understand mechanics. Like, you understand that strength is in flexibility. Mm. you flexible. you got to survive. You can hold dear to your, your, your ideals, but you gotta, you got to um, gotta keep going. And you got to uh, give ground. you got to give ground. You know where you're going to. Yeah. yeah, and you don't do it for yourself. You do it for your family. Oh, absolutely. Mm. That's so much important. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Oh, gosh, I've got oh, – man, do you know, David, I've got um, – how many pages? I've got six pages of questions. Do you know how many pages I've actually gone through that I've completed? <laughs> Guess. Guess how many pages. I've oh, got two. Two, two I hope. <laughs> <laughs> we don't do. And we've been we've been talking for two and a over, well over two hours. Yeah, we're going on. Yeah. yeah. How do you, you want to do? This? Do you want to keep yeah. going, or have you had enough? I'm all right for a little while. What about you? Yeah, we can do it a little bit longer. Look, what I've got is um, I've got this last page here. There's a few things that I really like to talk to you about, but I'm going to pass on them because I reckon what we'll do is we'll just get kind of down into philosophy land. This page is titled David the Human, so I've passed over all the other ones as David is the businessman, blah, blah, blah. We talked about that anyway pretty much. So let's just go for this. What are the new challenges coming up for you? Oh, well, oh, they're good ones, good ones, yeah. Look, I'm, 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 I'm 
continuing to work with Jim Homan Turner. Yep. I'm working with Mitchell Rice, uh, doing doing you know furniture designs and interesting stuff there. Really, really interesting stuff. I don't know Mitchell. Oh look, no, yeah, yeah. Look, he he um, went through the apprenticeship system. He knows a lot of people in Canberra. He worked at Monero Timbers as their head of workshop for 13 years. Oh yeah. He knows machining. He knows timber. He knows the basics. Yeah. And he's surviving. He's going off on his own, has a little child, works yeah. from home. Lovely. Just lovely. Yeah. yeah. Subscriber. Yeah. But at home, if here at the gallery, I've got Mahela working, and we have an understanding for a generational change. Yeah, right. This is super important. It is the most important challenge of my life. Yeah. The woodworks has got to go beyond me. Yeah. It's gone for 36 years now. We're into our 36th year. We just interviewed a girl yesterday, same age as Mahela. How old is Mahela? Is she young? Or? Oh, uh, mid-20s. Yeah. 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 Uh, she went through ANU, ceramics, yeah. honors, top of their game. Yeah. She's on her way. She, she's a local. She's worked in all kinds of hospitality in, in, in Bungendore yeah. over, you know, since she was 14. She, she knows the game, comes from an artistic family, yeah. more craft-like. Are you going to sell this business to them or are you going to just pass it? How, you don't have to, I don't know. You don't have to don't say, know. oh, that's like... It's no, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, look, look, it's not going to go to the family. The family's not. It's got to move on. I'm a, I'm in okay health. I can go on for a while. Good to hear. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, I put a lot of store into Mahela and this new girl, Rhiannon. Yeah. They both know social media. Rhiannon knows a bit more about websites and stuff. Yeah. Um, I hope the chemistry works. We've got one, two, three, four. Four people have been with us more than 15 years. Yeah. That's a pretty so, loyal workforce right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we've got to move on from that. We know yeah. that. Mm. They know that. So, yeah, that's the challenge. Yeah, I, And my personal work, I, you know, it's, it's great. I'm, happy, I'm, I'm always alive. I'm alive when I'm, when I'm designing stuff. Yeah. It's when I stay up at night, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually absolutely bedeviled by this one project, <laughs> and I can't get it right. You know, yeah. and it's it's a simple thing. You you don't understand right away because you've got a very very sharp mind. I'm taking a solid piece of wood, about seventy five thick and about two hundred in depth. Yeah. And Putting it in diagonals in various ways to to shape uh, a a sculptural shelf plus vertical elements. Yeah. And over and over again, I get undone by the damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> so here I am at my desk with with styrofoam, <laughs> cutting them up in little bits. <laughs> and my friend uh, yeah, Mitchell Rice, you know, he's cutting up bits as well. Yeah. And, Oh God! I know this. I know this dilemma. I know it really well. Delightful. 
God. Yeah. Look, when it all comes together, you you, you kind of go, why didn't I think of that the first time? <laughs> you just can't. It's, yeah, for yeah. some reason, you just can't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And look, on a, on a little more... A little more personal level, I have joined the the board of SWA, and we are desperately trying to change and, and create a, a new generation there. And SWA is the Studio Woodworkers Australia, and it's uh, it's a it's an association for professional woodworkers. Yeah, it is. Yep. Yeah. And we're trying to make our pitch to mid mid career people. Mm. And as I said, Mahal and I visited Rolf at his yeah. workshop today. Six people there and we're inviting them to join SWA and uh, that's the beginning in the Canberra area anyway. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna have a chat to Will Matheson who's the chair of current chair of SWA in due course. Probably a few weeks and uh, he can he can do a spiel on that if he wants. So we're hoping it you can help spearhead something happening in Adelaide. Well we'll see about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's chemistry, mate. It's chemistry, isn't it? Yeah, you know? um, it's um, times and places, and um, I'm I'm going to spend a lot of time doing these podcasts. Mm-hmm. Good, good, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is very- and it's it's yeah. totally um, SWA in this podcast is like they're they're so simpatico in so many ways. Indeed, indeed, and I've mentioned that to Will. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've had a had a long conversation to Will too about it. So yeah, it's all good. Um, how important do you reckon social media is to the modern designer maker? Um, I'm not sure yet. No. I, I need objective kind of feedback on that. Yeah, I have a feeling it's been oversold. I have a feeling. There's a lot of time and effort being put into people who are in their workshop doing social media. It'd be really nice to be able to quantify it in a really, you know, it would be. You know yeah. this is what you're going to get. You're going to get new clients. There's no question. You're going to get a gallery contacting you. There's no question. You're mm-hmm. going to have people contacting you that don't know you or anyone you know personally, and you're going to get business from that. If that's the case, put more time into it. If it's not the case, mm-hmm. start making something. Mm-hmm. Look, if I go back to my time in New York, putting an ad in the paper, you meet people. I think they make a pretty quick assessment. They see someone like me and others, young person in their 30s, living their dream. Somehow you communicate that. Yeah. It's beyond actual words. It's beyond your cell, all the rest of it. Because I'm not a very good self person. That's why I've got so many people working for me here. <laughs> it's I'm such terrible. a funny thing to say. I'm terrible, man. <laughs> uh, just don't do it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You've got to know your weaknesses too, you know? you got to know where you are. I would show up these clients and invariably I'd be okay with them, you know? Mm. They would see somebody who was committed, was real, you know, real, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that, you could tell someone who's living their dream, I think. Yeah. Not very objective, but I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting you say that people are looking for that for that extra. It's not looking for the piece. They are looking for something that's an object. Looking for the person. They buy 
more than that. Yeah. Always yeah. have and probably yeah. always will. It's it's the meaning behind it that mm. is the part that they buy. Yep. And yep. you've it's, got to you've got to have story. It's your story, yeah. Yeah. Whether you can tell it or not. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can't be glib. I'm, I'm not no. glib. I, Don't make I, it up. No, 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 no. I'm not. No, not. But you can be a little bit inarticulate. Whatever. Yeah. I think people will assess that you're real. Yeah. Uh, look, mate. A lot of people are working out there for corporations or for a salary and when someone comes along who is chosen a different life i think they respond to that yeah i hope <laughs> yeah look once again we're saying turn that bowl in a pale wood give it a go <laughs> make yeah. sure you I, I think you need to temper it though like temper it with something that you know have more certainty but don't not have a go at something that somebody tells you, nah, you shouldn't do that. It's not going to work. Time your nose to that, but at the same time, make something that you know will work. Yeah. Mm. I think if there's any, any downside to the social media as being too influenced by, by the group, yeah. you really need to listen to yourself. Yeah. I have no idea why I decided to go to White Oak when I was in New York, when yeah. everything was uh, all not. Just being perverse, I suppose. I don't know. You know, you got to go against the brain, you know? Yeah, you, gotta... you might have just got the most awesome board. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, look, it's maybe, yeah, it's just fortuitous, isn't it? Yeah. I have no I don't know why. When the apocalypse comes, will you have <laughs> any useful skills? Hmm. Where nothing is here, you mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't define what the apocalypse was. That's for you. You can oh. tell me. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, skills. I think that, that that thing I talked about before is flexibility, man. You know, yeah. survive. Yeah, survive. You do your permaculture. If, look, if you if a person wants certainty in life, yeah, go get a salary. Yeah. But look, mate, we've only got one life. Yeah. we got to live it. Yeah. It's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. Ditto that. Mm. Yeah, but don't stop. No, no. You gotta, yeah. Look, it's, it's, a, it's a very short life. Very, yeah. mm. From my perspective, it's exceptionally short. It's insidious yeah. because I can recall when I was in my 30s and it didn't feel short. It felt like it would go on for no, a long, long not. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Um, I don't think there's... Uh, time in a good life for a heap of worry. I think there's, um, I think all those sorts of things you can sort of let go of as best you can and be active. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you active. could, yeah, if you could go back and give advice to a young David, what would it be? And do you think you'd listen? I've thought about that a little bit. And I wonder about being pioneers. I know that in our kind of game, we are really, we're really dependent on the um, oh, the old days. Craftsmen were employed by the aristocracy. Mm. Our new aristocracy are the well-employed, the high, the high-salaried person. Mm. So we're still. I understand that we 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 are beholden to them. 
At the same time, I chose Bungendorf because it wasn't Canberra. And I do believe, with, with some great courage, one, one could contemplate moving to a place like Broken Hill. <laughs> Pro Hart did, and he did pretty yeah. well out of that. About six other artists. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Art's a slightly different game than, than woodworking, of course. Yeah. And how you make it there, I don't know. But I do believe that cities are a hard place to survive. Mm. Really hard. And those who are doing it, and even in Canberra, I, you know, I'm, I'm really impressed. I don't know how they're doing it, but mm. they've got to, they've got to charge enough to cover their, their, their outgoings. Mm. And maybe maybe the, the salary people are understanding enough of that. Maybe, you know. Maybe if you are also fairly good at marketing yourself, marketing your products, putting it in the right place, being genuinely friendly to people and um, providing a service as well. I think what we do for the most part is provide service and product. Mm-hmm you're not going to sell too many product without the service that goes along with it. Yes, yes, yes. The problem comes, some of the problem is, is with social media. I'm, I'm kind of thinking of Melbourne, but it, it, it must be true everywhere. And it may not be true just now, but it was true maybe four or five years ago. And then these things come in waves and fashion. But there was woodworking that really was a tabletop with metal legs. Yeah. Done at price. And this this depressed my friends down there enormously. Because they felt that the buyers didn't know any different. And they were they were buying on price. But it wasn't woodworking. I think we have to acknowledge the challenges and the difficulties. Yes. Yep. <laughs> and and honestly, I look at the work you've done in the past. George Ingham has done in the past, and honestly, we're not there at the moment. There has been a dilution over the last 10 years. Mm. You got any ideas why that is? Social media, I think. Do you? I do. Just a dumbing down. Yeah. Mm. Maybe there's always going to be outliers out there. I hope so. I hope so. And we yeah. just... Maybe from your perspective, my perspective too, somebody will come out of the woodwork tomorrow and just go, whoa. Look, I can tell you one good story from other woodworks is when we have something extraordinary here, even if at a high price, it is highly, highly appreciated by a number of people. Yeah. We've got a couple of pieces here now that have been here since uh, Studio studio Furniture Mm. 2000. Team. We know that they're going to sell because they're so individual and so sweet. Yeah, they're just a big high price. And oh man, I come back to architects and we have really, really, really missed the boat on designing our houses. I totally agree. Oh my <laughs> god, architecture in, in Australia oh, is woeful. <laughs> Don't want to offend any architects out there. And I actually don't even blame the architects. I blame fully 100% clients yeah. that buy shit. Yeah. Well, here's one example. Look at the entranceway to houses these days. What a fantastic opportunity for a gallery, a mini gallery 
people walk in and say, wow, this is wonderful. You know, a space. Mm. You, we put aside spaces for, uh, you know, family watching a big screen and all the rest of it. Maybe even it's a pool table. I don't know. But this space, when you're entering here for, for gallery kind of pieces, furniture, artwork, the whole works, you know, mm. what a, what a marvelous opportunity. We, we lost it. We've gone through 10 or 15 years of architectural exuberance, almost to no end. No, we've achieved nothing but bigness. <laughs> I, I just think we've, we've, yeah, okay, bigness. I mean, you know, Australia is, for the most part, hot and dry. On the yep. eastern seaboard, you know, up mm-hmm. above uh, Sydney, it's not. It's, it's humid. But in no case do you get even a sense that there's a climate that's being addressed. Yep. At the very least, or quality materials, come on. Mm-hmm. And I put that down to the clients. I think the architects would come along if the client said, no, nah, I'm not uh, putting up with this. Entirely, no, no, no. I mean, it's a whole fashion industry as well. But honestly, the architects have an obligation. And so do the schools. It starts at the university level. And they've got to put out examples of good design, and they're not doing it. Mm. They're not addressing the issues that you're, you're just raising about the hot climate. Yeah, okay, the clients want to go through the magazines and stuff like that. But you put them forward good reasons for what you're doing, and they'll do, they'll come to it. Mm. And I'm not talking about double and triple glazing and that kind of stuff. No, it's a lot more than that. It's about mm. using a space properly. Orientating and, it on the site. Oh, yeah, that too, yeah. But Being, quality of living, how you live your life. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Oh man, you got, oh yeah, yeah, a whole the whole ga- gamut, a whole gamut about. Do you want to live as a family, as a unit, or do you want to have your kids off at one end of the house and you're at the other? You know, is that whole kind of thing? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I want my kids at the other end of the house. No, that's, that's it's completely not true. I have uh, an old house that I live in now and it's got a shop front that's not a shop anymore. And my entire family stay in this shop front all the time. We, we go to bed in our bedrooms and as soon as somebody's up, we're in this shop and we just hang. Yeah. Yeah. Doing our own thing, but we hang and it's, it's the most amazing space. We lived around our kitchen table. Kitchen's a homework on it. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) Yeah. I read books, the whole thing, you know. (laughs) It's, you know, it's, 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 yeah. We've got, oh, yeah. I think it's a really complex little problem. It's not, it's not um, just to say, okay, let's get education for architects or whatever. There's a whole lot of things about how, uh, modern people, you know, just don't have time even or, you know, they, they're not in a job that they think they'll have next year and they've got massive mortgages because they want to have this house in town that's too big for them. And yep. so you're constantly on edge because you've got to pay that mortgage down and you don't have time because you've got to work all the time and your family's sort of, hmm. Well, look, going even wider... I asked a friend of mine, he's pretty knowledgeable about the world, 
And apparently, Russia has a lower GDP than Australia. We're about 15th in the world. I don't know where Russia is. But Russia is sending people to, you know, to the moon and the rest of it and doing all the things they do, and being a world power. I said, how can they afford that? And apparently, I think they have an okay-ish education and health sort of game. How can they afford that? And he said, we put all our money into houses. Wow. Mm. (laughs) I mean, that's our debt, you know? Mm. I think we've made a choice there, but we've also chose to be highly indebted as a country. Look, if anything, this conversation is all connected. It's not just woodworking alone. It's how we live our lives Mm. and the politics. The very interesting thing about running a creative business is that it is marginal and out of the ordinary. Mm-hmm. You step outside of uh, what is understood by a lot of people. And to make that your living requires some pretty interesting sets of ingredients and a lot of really good luck. Lots of good luck, yeah. And that's above and beyond the hard work. Mm. If one of those sets of ingredients that you've got that's making it work falls over, the whole thing can go down. Yeah. Mm. So yeah. I think uh, resilience and tenacity. Like, look, if w- do you have advice you could give to somebody just starting out in a creative biz- business? What, you know, If you could give one piece of advice, what would it be? You know, I'd, I, I'd wish that I had some bit of wisdom. But, oh, look, man. Uh, Maybe we've touched on it. Previously, um, over and over again. Yeah. yeah, life life is very short, and it's it, you know it's not a dress rehearsal. Yeah. You know, and I think we got to keep that in focus all the time. Yeah, uh, yeah. keeping it sort of narrow, straight and narrow. But but you know you know where you want to go. You want to try and get there. If you don't get there, uh, you pick yourself up and move on. You know, mm, we talked about that. We talked about that with Matthew, and yeah. you know, I've had the ups and downs, and yeah, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to record a little outro that lets people know how to, how people can get in touch with the gallery and go and visit. And okay. if you want, I can have some. I don't think you'd probably want to have people get in touch with you, would you? Or I prefer not. Yeah, just get in Bungle. touch with the gallery. Bungendor yeah, yeah. Woodworks Gallery people, go out yeah. and visit mm. and um, enjoy. It's the it's just a beautiful place and I think sets a standard, a really, really high standard for galleries uh, to try and achieve right throughout the country and it doesn't even matter what they're trying to uh, present. Have we left anything out, David? Is there anything you want to add? Oh, nothing, nothing, Adrian. No, I think areas all right. I hope I haven't been too negative at the end here. Um, <laughs> what are you going to do if you have? Look, I mean, it's I, too late. I, I, yeah, on the positive note, I'm really, 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 really happy about trying to move on to the next generation. Yeah, you know? that's it. That's that's the side. Yeah, that's it. That's honest. That's that's not bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's it's obvious. Yeah, that gets me up. Honestly, yeah. Well, pass it on. Yeah, fight the good fight. You too. Yeah. Yeah. 
Hope to speak to you soon, Dave. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you yeah. so much. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, same. Yeah. Thank you. All right. All right, mate. Cheers. Cheers, cheers. Bye-bye. Thanks for the conversation, David. Really, really appreciate you being so open and honest. If you want to support the Designer Maker Revolution, please share with your friends. Share on your social media. Thanks heaps for all your positive feedback. I really appreciate it. Keep that coming in. Don't hesitate to get in touch with me at make at designermakerrevolution.com. Don't forget to subscribe. We'll see you next time. Bye.